Hi, I'm Tim Rood, Head of Industry Relations here at Citus AMC. Welcome to the latest segment of On the Hill. My distinguished guest today is Kathy Kreniger, former director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, CFEB. Kathy, welcome. Thank you so much, Tim. Fantastic to be with you. Kathy, I'm, I'm going to try to do your bio, and I'll admit, reading it, I was humbled and realized that I've been a terrible public servant myself, and I need to make some redemption. So just quickly, so you served, as I mentioned, on the Senate Confirmed Director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That was from December 2018 to January 2021. Uh, you made your mark on basically all aspects of the agency's missions, operations, particularly in facilitating innovation, promoting financial inclusion, leading through economic uncertainty uh, of the global pandemic. That's an understatement. You also served on the board of the FDIC um, and EPSOC and as chair of the Federal Financial Institutions Examinations Council. Your public, distinguished public sector career spans roles at the Department of Transportation, Homeland Security, Office of Management and Budget, which I always find fascinating, and in both Senate and House of Representatives. Uh, you graduated magna cum laude from Marquette University and earned a law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. And you served as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in Ukraine. I think that is the second or third Peace Corps volunteer we've had on here. So thanks and congratulations on all your accomplishments. Uh, thank you so much. I feel very honored to have been able to serve in so many fantastic positions and with other great people. You certainly have done that. But I, I'm going to start us off with a little bit of a darker tone, Kathy. I, you know, as, as I do, I, I did do some research on you. Uh, you know, just to summarize, you're a you know, small town girl from Ohio, Chagrin Falls. I think my graduating class in high school had more people than Chagrin Falls, as best I could tell. Your three brothers you went to a small Jesuit university, volunteered for the Peace Corps, as we said, highly decorated public servant, Georgetown Law at night while working during the day. So that's the setup for you know, not the most decadent background and certainly not the profile of someone of a, I'd say an amoral corporate bloodsucker, which is relevant for my lead in. So this really just imagine my horror of watching some of these congressional hearings, heck, even your confirmation hearing where you testified and were verbally attacked on the receiving end of vicious, I'd say hateful insults. I described it to my wife. It was like watching members of Congress pistol whipping a kid in town for a field trip. It was just unprovoked. So truly embarrassing as an American citizen to watch. You were naturally very composed, dignified in the face of this wicked and baseless criticism. So that had to have been surreal. And I've got to ask, what have you been doing since your resignation to kind of, you know, reset and get prepared for your next professional chapter? Thank you so much, Tim, for uh, reminding me of all of those uh, highlights of my public sector career, particularly the highlights of, of putting myself forward to be director of the CFPB. I mean, I, I will pause a moment on this because you brought it up, and I think it's important uh, to at least share my, my philosophy on this. I guess for good or for bad, uh, engaging in public service at the highest levels means entering the political arena. And while I have been incredibly lucky in my career to work for and with some great leaders uh, who really showed me how to navigate this town in a way that aligns with my values, you know, treating people as I would like to be treated, focusing on the policy goals, focusing on what's right for the American people, acknowledging frankly that reasonable people can disagree and still find a way to get things done. Uh, but clearly uh, from, from the highlights reel you just outlined, 
not everyone engages in that manner. And uh, in, in my mind, the character assassination that too frequently happens is, is really just a lazy way out. Uh, I prefer to engage in the exchange and debate of ideas and to seek solutions. And that really has served me well and frankly allowed me to look myself in the mirror every day uh, during my public sector career. And I, I certainly wanna thank all of the political leaders on both sides of the aisle who engage in productive ways, who take time to listen to each other. Uh, and I will at least assure your listeners that despite what it may look like on TV or in social media, and certainly if you watched any of my hearings, we know that there are a lot of thoughtful people who are engaged uh, and are really looking to do the right thing by the public and, and it's important work. So I remain grateful to everyone that signs up for the gauntlet. Since you asked me about my, my resignation since that point, it's certainly worth noting too that in light of the Supreme Court decision in Salem Law and the position that I took in that case, you know, that's really what led to my resignation. I knew that a change in administration could mean that I would not get to serve my full five-year term as director. And, and, you know, that is what happened. I took some time off with family and friends as, as much as I could, given the pandemic. And I'm excited about my next step, uh, but I am not quite in the place where I can announce that yet. Uh, but I will make sure you'll be among the first to know. Uh, so I am excited. I, I will be back amongst uh, the full-time workforce. In the meantime, I have been helping out on, on a few different projects. I'm working with the uh, Milken Institute's FinTech Advisory Committee, um, working with the Financial Data Exchange. So really looking to help further things that are, again, uh, productive in financial services. Probably would have spent that time a little differently, but <laughs> God bless you. Well, I, I, there's an article, and um, I think it's from the New York Times, that I think I've shared I don't know, 50 times with other people in and around DC. And it was, it was called The Dying Art of Disagreement. And it just laid open and bare basically by not uh, engaging in that kind of civil discourse and disagreement. You really don't learn anything and you can't teach anybody anything. And it, it really is at the foundation of our society and certainly of our you know decorum. And it was a great article. So if, if you ever get a chance where you just find somebody who's completely obstinate and inconsiderate. It's a wonderful article to, to share. I did. You did share it with me and I, I found it very enlightening. So I definitely now have least, it at the ready. At least, at least I'm consistent, Kathy. <laughs> All right, so let's, let's jump into it. So, you know, under your leadership at the CFPB, uh, so the financial services industry, I would say, breathed a loud and collective sigh of relief at your clarifications around abusive behavior or practices under UDAP which were widely viewed as ambiguous, often seen like an arbitrary catch-all for companies and or practices that examiners just did not like. That policy clarification, unfortunately, was quickly rescinded post the inauguration, along with seven other policy statements that you issued in, I think, 2020 to afford the consumer finance industry flexibilities for dealing with the pandemic. Those were um, rescinded by Acting Director Weijio. So many of these rescissions have the mortgage origination and servicing industries waking up in fear of their government all over again, particularly mortgage servicers. So the CFPB has made it perfectly clear that the mortgage servicing, that mortgage servicing in general is going to be under a tremendous scrutiny for its dealing with distressed homeowners during and after COVID-19. So I guess my question is, what advice would you give mortgage servicers who are trying to prepare for this vigorous enforcement environment? Definitely an important question, Tim, and some good level setting here in terms of what's been happening. 
I mean, look, we, we all think back to, to March 2020 and what exactly the coming months, much less years would look like was completely unclear. I mean, it, it certainly threw the U.S. economy, the U.S. healthcare system for quite a loop. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what would be ahead, what that would look like. And as regulators, I'm very proud of how we all came together in the financial services regulatory space to look at ways that we could provide uh, as much clarity as we could about what was expected. And frankly, that gets packed to the heart of the matter. Uh, it really is putting consumers first, treating your customers fairly, and, and recognizing that everyone was, was stressed during that time. So you know, not just consumers, uh, uh, but even those consumers who happen to work in the mortgage industry or happen to work in financial services. So the notion that you know, you're going to be flooded with calls from customers uh, and yet your employees are also suffering, uh, maybe ill, have family members, members who are ill. So the, the you know, uh, statements that we issued and the, the flexibility that was issued was recognizing that the operational challenges in particular that entities were facing when the guidance was very clear that putting customers first was, was the important priority. So that was the goal. That is not the case anymore. So uh, I mm -hmm. certainly think it's within the agency's purview to pull back those flexibilities. And I, I won't speak to the sign that that sends, but I think, you know, there's enough time had passed. And I think the industry really did come through in terms of figuring out how they should operate and how they could operate, recognizing those operational challenges. And as a former Homeland Security employee too, resiliency in general and operations is, is a priority and, and I think an important thing. So I you know, really uh, want to applaud everyone for coming through as, as well as they did recognizing all the hardships that are being faced still. So now in terms of answering your question specifically, you know, what, what should mortgage servicers do now? I mean, it really gets back to that fundamental issue, treating consumers fairly, treating their borrowers fairly, communicating their options clearly. That, that really does need to be the priority. Uh, and I will say, if you're you know, behind the eight ball on that already, you're, you're definitely in trouble and, and probably should be. Let's talk about a few basics here. One is having a compliance management system in place. I mean, what that really means is just having good processes in place making sure that the engagements and interactions are documented, making sure that your people are well-trained and know what the rules are. The principles that I laid out in the policy I issued on responsible business conduct still matter. Uh, you know, we, we've, I hope that doesn't become a political ping pong ball as well, but the basic fundamentals are still there and are, are important. Companies have to be able to have processes to identify mistakes, uh, violations, potential issues, before the CFPB examiners do or before state examiners do. Uh, you wanna take steps to remedy the issues and provide redress for any affected borrowers. You wanna have a good relationship with your examiners and you know, that matters. That matters even in the case of enforcement action, which is generally what uh, folks are afraid of. But supervision has a voice in the process of advocating for matters to stay in supervision or to transition to enforcement. And, I guess I just looking at what the CFPB has said recently too, made it very clear that avoiding avoidable foreclosures is a priority. And, and frankly, that fits, you know, right in, you know, with taking care of your customers and treating them fairly. If there are options in terms of the loss mitigation waterfall that, you know, a, a consumer uh, has in front of them, 
you know, that's something that absolutely needs to be communicated clearly and, and thinking about what the you know, beneficial outcome could be for consumers. And one area I would note, and, and it, you know, it, is, it is absolutely fair to the industry and it's gonna be fair to certain borrowers. There are borrowers for whom foreclosure might end up actually being the best option for them. And so again, those are things that, you know, it becomes as more time goes by, that's, that's a challenging issue to deal with as well. But I do believe that if mortgage services are documenting the process, are following it, can prove those things and, and you know, take care of people, you know, that's, that's going to serve them well. And that's what they need to keep doing. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, it's a lot easier said than done. I don't need to tell you. Yes. Because uh, you know, being compliant means a lot of things to a lot of different people. When you think about applicable state laws, federal laws, investor rules, guarantor requirements. And you got to do things, you know, of course, that you've got to be putting in place processes that are going to be efficient, simple. We learned a lot of lessons from the financial crisis, of course, around those lines. And I I think a lot of those are working out. But then you've got to make sure that those speeding and simple practices actually hold up to scrutiny, you know, or any legal challenges down the road. Again, no yeah, absolutely feet. complex. Uh, no, no doubt about it. Uh, it's absolutely easier said than done. Yeah, well, I, I'm encouraged by everything that I've seen. And I, I think certainly people's head are on a, on a swivel and learned a lot from the financial crisis, policymakers and operators. So hopefully we'll, we'll see the, the best possible outcome for everybody. But let me move on a little bit past the CFPB stuff. So, I mean, obviously most people in financial services know you best as the most recent CFPB director, but you've definitely enjoyed a long career in government service and you've actually worked for both political parties. You know, at some of the highest and most influential levels. Have you worked on the Hill? You've been an operator in this, you know, complex ecosystem called DC. So what do you think people, this is a topic that I, I always find fascinating and I try to ask people like you, but what do you think people, particularly companies whose business interests are kind of intertwined with policymakers and enforcement agencies, really need to better understand or best understand about how DC works? And maybe while we're on the theme, you know, we could use the mortgage industry as a case study of how this these public policy objectives from politicians make it through the the sausage making process, you know, of agency level policymaking. I think you're you're definitely right, Tim. I think most people think of DC as as three branches of government. You know, you go back to your civics classes in in uh, high school or grade school, but it it gets pretty complicated uh, pretty quickly after that because there are a lot of checks and balances in the system. Uh, a lot of, you know, a number of different agencies uh, that people have and have not heard of, frankly, that can weigh in on things. I guess the, the one thing I would say about D.C. generally is that it is definitely easier to stop something from happening than to actually put something positive, new or different into place. <laughs> so that is that is one note I will I will throw out there. And I think there are a couple different examples of that, particularly if you're talking about a change, you know, in the law. And it is often crisis that leads to that. Certainly the the Dodd-Frank Act is a demonstration of that with the financial crisis, uh, dramatic action that gets taken. But even in that, you know, the ability to deal with or, or otherwise maybe redistribute responsibilities, if you will, amongst agencies, you know, that's still something that is just very hard to do. So take the pandemic response. As director of the CFPB, I had a tremendous bully pulpit. But in terms of looking at what action could I take alone, uh, consistent with my 
authorities, well, it quickly became clear that, you know, when it comes to how banks, for example, can interact with consumers and, you know, what, what makes sense in terms of safety and soundness, what uh, FDIC, OCC, Federal Reserve flexibilities are going to be there that could, frankly, come into play with anything that the CFPB was directing entities to do vis-a-vis their customers. And so those things, you know, there, there is an implication there, both in consumer protection and in safety and soundness. So working really closely together is what we ended up doing. So much of the early pandemic actions were interagency statements. And even that, you know, in terms of changing rules, you take the, the uh, mortgage servicing topic we just talked about. There is a very complicated already, you know, mortgage servicing rule system, and it takes into account loss mitigation situations, whether it is disaster or otherwise, uh, took lessons from the, pa- you know, from the financial crisis. But the pandemic, you know, putting in new rules for the pandemic really was not something that could happen fast by, by any stretch. And mortgage servicing companies were already dealing with it. So really the things that you can do in the midst of the crisis is it just requires a lot of engagement and conversation. It requires kind of quick action where some of these things are uh, very difficult to do in quick response. And then the other thing that I know uh, you were getting at is, is kind of away from my time at the CFPB, but back to, uh, in particular, the Office of Management and Budget. So I, I had the honor of serving as the uh, program associate director for general government programs. And that really means that basically you've got the entire government split amongst five people in terms of the, the full budget uh, and policy issues in OMB. So everything that touched Treasury, HUD, Justice Department, Homeland Security, uh, I had a staff of, of 60 incredibly capable, talented people uh, who really care about budget, really care about um, smart implementation and execution. And uh, you know, we had our hands in, in many uh, different major policies, major programs. So housing finance uh, is, I think, a great example because the president issued an executive order. We had a report that Treasury pulled together with a lot of engagement with industry. I'm sure some of your listeners uh, actually went in and met with Treasury and the team uh, on a number of the meetings that were had to talk about what housing finance uh, policy should be in the new administration. Uh, This is, of course, when President Trump came in in 2017. OMB had a huge role uh, in that, of course, because the sweep coming from Fannie and Freddie and GSEs was actually a, a huge piece of the budget. So those, those funds were actually a major uh, you know, a revenue source, uh, frankly, for the, for the budget, so much so that as we looked at what could be had uh, in terms of the next steps, it was, it was a challenge for putting the budget together. And in addition to that, you know, OMB was involved in in the policy dynamics, certainly things that affect the federal housing agencies' uh, receipts. That also has a huge impact on the budget. So all of the policy around that, we were, uh, you know, played a key role in. And some of your listeners know that. Certainly they're they're, uh, lobbyists to the extent they have some know that, that OMB does play a pretty big role, but it's not something that probably those um, outside of D.C., would really know a small agency that has you know really a, a role in really every the, every big issue uh, that's coming through 
uh, and administration and through the government OMB is involved in. And doesn't OMB is applying really a, a social and a financial test to a lot of the policies that the agency is looking to promote, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, so the other part of OMB really that, that matters here too is OIRA. And so they actually, all regulations come through OMB and, and it's as a facilitator, you know, they review uh, all the rules that come through, but uh, you know, all the policies FHA was, was seeking to issue thinking about the mortgagee letters, right? Well, um, that, yeah. that FHA mm-hmm. issues. So those letters uh, come through OMB and, and those get reviewed again for the budgetary implications, but all the policy implications to those, you know, we coordinate without, with the rest of the White House, with other agencies that have issues. And so you get to the point I made earlier about who can stop things. Really, you know, so many agencies can opine uh, on other agencies' rulemakings, um, at least generally within cabinet agencies, the independent agencies are, are a little different in that respect, but, uh, but that kind of collaboration, the input there, the watching for those interdependencies, you know, it is, I believe it's a pretty critical part um, of effective governing and OMB is right in the middle of that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you've got places like the NEC, National Economic Council, that's basically adjudicating issues between the different agencies. So it's, it's just fascinating. I didn't mean to make it a, a civics course, but for people who are trying to bang their head against the wall in desperation, wondering why the heck this, that, or the other thing um, isn't going through or went through, um, you know, without having line of sight in some of these other agencies, their role, their objectives really mucks up the thought process. Definitely, definitely the case. All right. Well, let me we'll pivot back to CFPB for a minute, but I was thinking about this the other day, and one of the criticisms of the CFPB under Obama was that, you know, oftentimes it felt like compliance, the example was used before, like pornography or hate speech is just too darn subjective. You know, I'll know it when I see it or hear it. So members of enforcement groups were, you know, embedded in these supervisory audit teams who would find a company or practice they didn't like, they'd tag it as a violation of some ambiguous rule, sometimes intentionally ambiguous. And then they apply penalties that many argued were kind of outsized the violations. My old business partner used to use the, the analogy football to equal capital murder. So do you think we're heading back to that practice under Biden? And you know, what did you do or would you like to see done to make the environment more predictable for companies operating in financial services, especially? I, I think it, it gets back to the political environment here. And I, I'd like to see the CFPB certainly continue to mature in a way that it becomes part of the financial regulatory system that you can have, you know, a transition from leadership to leadership team and not everything really swings like that pendulum. I was watching actually uh, an event just right before we were speaking here that was that Chris Brimmer was hosting and Michael Sue uh, spoke and was talking about uh, Project Reach and, and the continuation of that at the OCC. Certainly there are things that folks are concerned about that Brian Brooks put into place that are changing, but at least uh, you know, there are some things that can continue. And I think that, that is very important. I think we don't need to spend time undoing everything that was before and, and certainly not things that, that uh, frankly make sense and are the right things to do. So those are the things that um, you know, I'd love to see continued uh, consistent with, of course, a set of, of policy principles where reasonable people can disagree um, and where it makes sense. 
I also would say that the, the I've said this before publicly, that I can appreciate why enforcement was the sharpest tool the CFPB employed early on. Uh, it was something that could be executed more quickly, particularly while a number of the statutory rulemakings that Congress directed in the Dodd-Frank Act were being you know, worked. That was going to take many years. And swift enforcement was something that could be done um, more quickly, and particularly when you had a statutory violation that was um, egregious or concerning. But again, that's, that's a, a tool for early on. That's not the only tool that the agency should employ going forward. And frankly, having that consistency, predictability, fairness in the system, the ability to call those balls and strikes uh, on a playing field that everyone understands and knows, that's where you get to what is best for consumers uh, in the long run. That is not, again, about pandering to industry or anything else. It's about what's best for consumers. Um, They want to be treated fairly and industry needs to know what the rules are so they can follow them. And so I I certainly hope that can continue. That would be what I would like to see continue. And I think, again, you know, putting rulemaking in place, enabling mechanisms where things that are new uh, and different can be tried, like the innovation policies that I instituted. I do think that's that's the right way uh, to engage with industry, to engage with consumer advocates, to think about changes or new things or different things that, you know, you, you have that opportunity and it's not across the table in, you know, the, the investigation or, or litigation context. It's going to be a much better outcome for consumers. Yep. I agree. I think that where we get concerned is if it looks to be, you know, obviously if the industry is playing catch me if you can, that obviously is, is untenable. But if the government is is playing, you know, move the goalpost or changing the rules in flight, you always quickly come back to, you know, it's not patriotism that compels companies to be in financial services. It's capitalism. And obviously, if they can't figure out what the rules are, how to comply to them, how to mitigate the risk, how to price for that risk, then eventually they're just going to assume not to take the risk and to do something that's a little bit more predictable and that doesn't serve consumers either. So just some sort of a balance and um, a more of a collegial sort of environment is, is what I'm hoping for. And obviously, as the CFPB matures and obviously get more and more experiences, I'm hoping that it settles out to that sort of an outcome because, again, one can't exist without the other. And another point I, I didn't respond to directly, but you mentioned it. It's really that proportionality. It takes me back to an earlier point as well. It, there, there is something incumbent on companies to, you know, again, follow those rules, to have the processes to identify where mistakes are made, uh, and to have that ability to come forward and say, here was a mistake or here was an issue and here's what we did about it. That has to be the way going forward. I mean, frankly, that, that, that's, it's not the government's responsibility to, to actually have to you know, move in and uncover all of those things. And to your point, it, sh- it shouldn't be a catch me if you can attitude because that's not going to be good for consumers, that's not going to be good for, for the business environment generally either. Yeah, I'm thinking of like the Andy Griffith show. Remember Otis? He would, the town drunk, he would get a little over his skis one night and he would go to the, the jailhouse and let himself in and lock him in for the night. You know, self-reporting, <laughs> things like that. You've got to kind of encourage some of that, you know, I don't want to call it responsible behavior behavior in that context, but you get what I'm saying. Yes, I get what you're saying. Right. Uh, and yes, we're looking for responsible business conduct for sure. All right. So from Andy Griffith back to uh, 
we'll get back to, I guess, to um, politics a little bit. So, I mean, it seems like you and I have talked about this, that every topic seems partisan these days. No great shock. Dems are against this, but the R's are for it and vice versa. When it came to the Bureau, it seemed like the, the Democrats thought that they could best protect consumers through rules and policies like ATR, QM, UDAP, and by punishing businesses who didn't meet the letter of the law or the rule or just the spirit of the rule or the law. But were there, were there any topics, you know, issues that enjoyed some consensus from both parties? And the, the two things that popped to mind from our conversations were like Section 1033 of Dodd-Frank around consumer access to financial records or the QM rule, for example? Yes, I, I got to tell you uh, uh, and tell your listeners, since I already told you this, my favorite issues are really those where uh, clearly don't they don't fall on political lines, where you've got, again, people who could have different perspectives uh, still grounded in their philosophies and principles from one side of the aisle or the other. So bringing that opportunity for consensus and, and kind of where things don't fall on partisan lines and the two issues you raised were definitely big ones uh, in terms of my tenured issues the Bureau is still grappling with. You know, Section 1033 about consumers' ability to provide access to their financial records and their personal information, how that gets shared amongst financial services providers. And that, that issue really brings a lot of different dynamics from privacy, from access from cybersecurity and, and the ways to secure and protect personal information, the types of personal information that institutions should have access to, and certainly some, some uh, dynamics around convenience and facilitation as well and, and the customer experience, which is why so many fintech companies care about this too and, and the interest of, of banks to provide better experiences to their customers and and we all also know that we, we want it as customers. So this, this question of, of how do you put that system into place? What does a rulemaking look like? Is a rulemaking even necessary? Is there a standard that industry could come together with consumer advocates to develop short of a regulation? A lot of really fascinating topics on the technology as it's evolving and the use of APIs to achieve this. So I, the issue has been a, a fascinating one. We issued just an advance notice of proposed rulemaking last year that I know the Bureau is pouring through comments on and thinking about what to do. And I'm sure we'll wait um, you know, for a confirmed director to move forward on. But again, it's great topic because it doesn't fall on partisan lines. And it really is about you know, what makes the most sense and how you go about this securely and what's best for consumers. Uh, and the QM rule as well, I know we'll, we'll get a little deeper into that, but really uh, fantastic to see members of you know, both parties writing letters together, uh, talking about the challenge of both affordable housing and affordable mortgages, the, the dream of home ownership, how you promote that, consistent, frankly, with the Dodd-Frank Act uh, stipulation around the ability to repay and what that means and how you determine that, particularly, in, and Tim, this is you know, your area of expertise as well, you know, that 30-year uh, fixed rate mortgage, you know, what does that look like? How could you figure out someone's ability to repay um, at the time of consummation of that mortgage when you're thinking about a long-term product like that? So there are some complicating dynamics with QM. And we also had, you know, again, a, a QM rule that already existed 
And the patch, the GSC patch that sat on top of that. So there were uh, some baseline dynamics with the QM rule as well that meant it didn't fall along partisan lines. Yeah, I think you could probably distill some of this down to consumer protections and responsible risk-taking with guardrails, right, to prevent systemic harm or unintended consequences should always be bipartisan. And I was encouraged by, you know, as we were looking at, um, we had done some work um, at my firm um, before we sold it to Citus AMC, which should have to be fabulous, by the way, where we were looking at all these alternative proxies for credit worthiness, capacity, collateral, you know, heuristic things and all that. And it was amazing of what you could string together to make new and better informed credit decisions. But at the same time, how you quickly found yourself running afoul with things like UDAP. You could you could predict things, but you couldn't really use them for credit decisioning or for pricing. But that, that comes back to the QM stuff. So like, I guess I to tie that all together. Like, how did you approach modifying the QM rule? I mean, why why'd you take it on in the first place? And you know, why did you settle on the, the new APOR based QM rule? And do you think what do you think happens to it in the Biden administration? That was a good example of something that seemed to have good, strong bipartisan support. No, that, that definitely is the case. And, and I am certainly gratified by that. You know, you don't, you don't do these things, uh, you know, hoping that people will come out and support it. But you also don't want to, you know, if you've if you got too much opposition or too much support, it's worth thinking about. But when you have bipartisan support, I think it's also, <laughs> it's, it's helpful uh, to, to have that dynamic. So with respect to the approach, it really comes from uh, even a lot of the work that we did, uh, that I did when I was at OMB on housing finance reform and looking at, you know, what would happen to the GSEs and the, the predicate of the, of the patch is really, uh, frankly, in many respects, ceding to the GSEs so much of the policy uh, around what, what ability to repay means, as you know. And so you, you take that and realize that, that that got outsourced to the GSEs. On the other hand, you have Appendix Q, that was a standard that was clear from so many conversations that no one thought was workable. So, you know, what is the alternative to the GSEs and what decisions they make? Really, there, there wasn't a good one. And so it was, how much do we take on? How do we take this on? If you really do have the end of conservatorship, is it appropriate? And again, conservatorship was the predicate of the, of the GSE patch um, when it was issued. Mm-hmm. So without conservatorship, you know, what does that look like? How could you justify the patch? Uh, so then you get to necessarily appendix Q has to be replaced um, because there has to be an option. And how do you have a, a level playing field regardless of who is really financing that loan, who is who is in the secondary market for that loan? So how, how do we do that? So that was really the, the beginning of the conversation there and, and to take so much off the table because, you know, we had a lot of discussion at the time, you know, is the patch going to be there? People who wanted the patch forever, people who wanted the patch to go away. And I told you where I was coming down in terms of conservatorship's future. I took the patch off the table. I said, we, we've got to have this conversation by saying, let's, let's uh, all come to the realization that the patch is going to end what does it look like now? And, and I do think that action was, was very helpful uh, in terms of level setting and, and forcing people to think about what it should look like in the problem. And I think that's going to be, you know, as you jump to the, what is, what is the Biden administration going to do? 
the, the future of the patch and the future of the GSEs, I think, is inextricably linked the, to this, what does the QM rule look like and what do they do with it? Because, you know, if they uh, recognize the patch needs to go away, I actually think the final rule that we put into place uh, is a very, um, you know, it looks like a very good solution uh, in that situation. But if they want to take a different direction on where the GSEs go, you know, then, then that becomes a completely uh, different conversation. Yeah, especially since there's more than one way that the GSEs could go. Receivership, privatized, utility, and you know, they all have obviously massive implications. Um, and only time will tell how that plays itself out. But as I said, I think to, um, I think it was to Mark Calabria in the interview, is like I, my, my expectation and kind of my fear is that the, the Dems will do everything they can to lean into the GSEs as instruments of public policy, which they're, you know, hard to argue that they are probably the best tools of public policy from a housing perspective. But you can only drive that so hard to you until you run afoul of the safety and soundness obligations that they have as conservator. And then once you meet in the middle, what happens? You know, do you do you abandon the public policy stuff, uh, the progressive agenda on that, or do you? maybe not engineer circumstances, but reevaluate their status in conservatorship and make a different determination that maybe they are better suited for receivership than conservatorship. Not, I'm not a prognosticator, but that's kind of like what I would see kind of bearing out at some point. That, that fork in the road will happen in my mind. No, I completely agree with you. And then it gets you to that fork in the road, taking us to a place where how can Congress not be the one that acts? I mean, this, you know, having this all thrown in the executive branches bailiwick to figure out is, it, you know, it, it, it really gets to an inappropriate place. Yeah. You could argue it's been in an inappropriate place. Well, that, that too. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Fair uh, enough. All right. Well, I'll leave you with two softballs, Kathy. First one would be, what advice would you give an incoming director of the CFPB in this environment? I did think about this question uh, quite a bit because I don't uh, don't generally purport to give other people advice. But, Maybe grief but counseling I, for the hearings or something. No. <laughs> but but I would say that that uh, you know humility and listening because y- you come into these positions and there is is there, there are so many different sides and there there is complexity and listening, you know, to, you know, really all the voices, the experts at the agency, absolutely, those who are affected by any decision, uh, coming forward and being transparent about the reason for the action. You know, you're, you're not beholden to anybody but, but yourself and the Constitution, the American people, the president, uh, when you move forward in these jobs. And so it really is a great responsibility and a great honor. So I think that, that listening and, and humility are important. You're here. All right. So, you had to do it over again. Any, any regrets? Any lessons learned from your time at the CFPB? Uh, I, if I was in your shoes, I can't even imagine how many tweets that I would have typed up and never sent, or or maybe sent the ones that I should have sent. I mean, as you're thinking about it, what what were those things? Any any of those big regrets or lessons learned? Well, I think you know it gets along with that humility here too. I I don't have any regrets. Uh, I actually don't chalk that up to to somehow thinking I everything I did was perfect. I think I'm, I'm like everyone else. Uh, I make mistakes, but it's really, you know, honestly looking at yourself every day, knowing that you're going in to do the right thing and listening to those around you was, was a key part of this. So I, you also recognize not everything you can change. And so I'm, I'm a firm believer in the serenity prayer 
and understanding that I can't uh, impose my will on on everyone else, uh, and and that's actually the right thing. So I think that's that's probably I think one of the one of the biggest lessons every day is that there are things I can control and things I cannot, and and again that wisdom to know the difference. Uh, I think there were there were cases where I didn't uh, quite get it right, and there were cases where I got it right, and. Uh, I won't go into particular details, but but I'll say um, I think that's that's something that helps me really get through it and and has really helped me in life. I'm not sure if that's Jesuit teaching or stoicism, but um, <laughs> yeah, but it but it definitely works. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you. You're an abs- absolutely impressive and delightful person, an amazing public service that's really humbled me, and uh, um, I look forward to see uh, what you're up to next. And uh, I hope it's as fulfilling as some of these other things. Have been for you. Thank you, Tim. It's fantastic getting to know you too. And uh, I, I think um, there'll be more in the future, I know, and, and really appreciate what you've done to help the public discourse on, on these topics. It's incredibly valuable. It's been a lot of fun too. Thanks, Kathy. Take care. You too. Thanks, Tim. You've been listening to Citus AMC's On the Hill. To learn more about Citus AMC, our company, our latest thinking, Visit us at CitusAMC.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter.